This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Copper Blue by Sugar. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, in our quest to expand the Dig Me Out family, we are welcoming a new reviewer and fellow podcaster to the show. And really? uh, we are. We've only had one other podcaster on in in our year and a half. I always think of Chip as a podcaster, but I guess he's just a blogger. He's a blogger, he's a writer, he's a he's kind of a media impresario <laughs> with his various websites and videos. Yeah, but he does and, a podcast. That's kind of crazy. I, I know. We've tried to, you know, edge him in that direction, but he doesn't. But we do have a podcaster from a very cool podcast from the Andy Darer Show, Mr. Andy Darer. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Just looking forward to talking a little music. Um, I do a lot of obscure music talk myself on my show. So um, it's good to to, uh, see you guys' interest in uh, alternative music of all sorts. So I'm, I'm definitely a fan. You've talked about being interested in music, and I've perused some of your episodes, and I've listened to some of them. I think our our tastes kind of crisscross in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. Can you talk about some of the guests that you've had over the past year and a half? Sure, I've had uh, a couple of these are out of print. They I, I'm only allowed twenty uh, podcasts on my website, so I found a way to get around that, and I've been posting them on YouTube. So eventually, I'll have all my episodes out, even from even the earlier ones. But uh, yeah, last year I had Aaron Burkhardt, the first drummer of Nirvana. We pretty much uh, dissected the whole Seattle scene. Um, you know, he only lasted from the year '87, and uh, he actually got kicked out of Nirvana when he borrowed Kurt's car and to drive into town and uh, got in a little scuffle with a policeman, ended up getting locked up, and Kurt's car got impounded. So that was pretty much the end of Aaron and Nirvana. But, I mean, that's a pretty cool story to tell, and he can yeah. he can tell his grandkids that, you know. But uh, Absolutely. besides that, this summer I had Chris Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets. A lot of crazy stories he had to talk about. Um, getting shot by a police officer, um, just spending time in jail, getting off heroin. There's a lot of stories he had to tell. Um, that had Craig Wedron from Shudder to Think, some cool Discord punk, you know, DC punk music in the 80s. And I had Matt Pinfield this year, you know, obviously a big, uh, big 90s MTV uh, VJ guy. He was a, he was just a total inspiration to speak with. Matt oh, Pinfield a- was kind of he's like Ken Jennings for music. What Ken <laughs> Jennings was to Jeopardy, that was men, Matt Pinfield for music in the 90s. I felt like like you'd watch it. Was it 120 minutes that he hosted yep. where he would just rattle off like. We're gonna play a song by this band who just so happened to be connected to this band, and then this band, and then they shared a drummer with this band, and they're now recording with this guy who also. Was, and it was like we just go on for five minutes, and you have like, you know, you have to have a <laughs> notebook. He, we talked about him being like the like a VJ version of Twitter back in the day, where he would name yeah. drop an influence of a band, then you check that out, then the record label you check that out, then just kind of spread the info. Now he's still doing it, but. uh I believe it's MTV3 or something that you have to have expensive cable for, I believe. He had one of the first shows on HDNet, I think. It was like an interview oh, show. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. I don't yeah, think he stays quite it. busy. Yeah. The reason you are joining us is, just so happens, um, you suggested, I think it was like a week or two ago, the album Copper Blue by Sugar. I think you sent a couple ideas for 
for shows, and I was like, hey, we just so happen to be doing <laughs> Copper Blue by Sugar, which was originally suggested like months ago by um, one of our listeners, Dane Olson. And so Bob Mould happens to have a new solo album out. It's actually today. We're recording this a week in advance, but this will be released on the day of Bob Mould's new solo record, Silver Age. It's a perfect time because Copper Blue was just reissued, uh, remastered, and then has some extra discs. What better time than now to revisit Copper Blue? Um, before we get into the history, I want to ask you guys, start with our guest, Andy. When was the first time that you heard Copper Blue? Like, when did that enter into your musical spectrum? I'll be honest, like, uh, Helpless and a couple, maybe one other of them was kind of just in the back of my brain from growing up in the 90s. But I became a huge Husker Du fan about 10 years ago and, you know, just soaked all that stuff up. Had Took some trips out to the Twin Cities and just really enjoyed them and the replacements. And, uh... Then, obviously, just doing my homework, I found out he had solo albums after that. Then he formed this little trio called Sugar. Got those albums probably about five years ago, and uh, just a huge fan. I love Beaster, too, and it's cool that they recorded at the same time. Jay, what about you? Prior to this, had you listened to any Sugar? Yeah, I think I was the uh, same story as Andy in terms of uh, like changes in Helpless were in my, in my brain and had heard over the years. Um, I think, you know... Maybe Keith, a friend of ours, and some other friends of ours uh, were, you know, really into the band. Just one of those bands, again, where, you know, you hear them <clears throat> here and there, become familiar with the music, but I never really spent a ton of time with it. Um, so this was an opportunity to do that for sure. It's funny that you mentioned Keith because he's actually the one that introduced me to Sugar. It was around, we lived together for a summer in college. It was, I think it was like summer of 96, and he gave me a stack of CDs one of them was uh, Catherine Wheel's Happy Days, um, the Posies Frosting on the Beater, uh, Jeff Buckley's Grace, and then this album. And there's probably a few more in there. And I would, when I was night guarding at night, I would take, you know, I have an eight hour shift overnight, and I would just take like a handful of CDs and listen to them. And he gave me both of the Sugar albums, File Under Easy Listening, which was actually the album going into this I was way more familiar with. So going, mm. actually getting to listen to this again, I knew some of these songs, but I wasn't as like completely familiar as I was with File Under Easy Listening. I don't know why that particular album stuck with me more, yeah. um, because listening to the two now, I'm, I much prefer Copper Blue. But we'll get into that. Hey, uh, um, we'll get into that just later. Spoiler, Jesus. I'm sorry, sorry. God. <laughs> I'll just say everybody just say whether or not you like the album. Oh right no now. no no! We're gonna get to we're gonna get to that. But first, thumbs gotta... up or thumbs down, Andy. Let's just get this over. <laughs> Let's just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Wham bam! Thank you, ma'am. I didn't yeah. say yeah. whether or not I, I said I preferred it. it. Doesn't mean I actually I didn't say whether or not I I'm giving it glorious praise or or a, simply a, a passing All grade. Right. All you right, left so. it obscure. Yeah, I did. All right. Now that we have avoided that catastrophe. <laughs> Let's get into the history of the band. History of the band. After Husker Du broke up and Bob Mould, uh, the lead singer of Sugar, put out a solo album, he formed Sugar in 1992 with Dave uh, Barb, I believe is how you pronounce it, on bass. Maybe Barbie, but I think it's Barb. And Malcolm Travis on drums. Their first album was released in September of 1992 on Ryko Disc in the U.S. and Creation in the U.K. 
In the UK, it was named the 1992 Enemy Album of the Year, but it did not have as big a national impact in the United States. It was more of a college alternative hit. Several tracks were recorded at the same time as the Copper Blue album, and they were released as an EP, which was mentioned earlier, called Beaster. That was released in April of 1993. The second album, File Under Easy Listening, was released in September of 94, also by Ryko Disc. Then a compilation album of all the B-sides, which was called B-sides, was released in July of 1995. And the first 25,000 copies of that album were released with a bonus disc with a live album called The Joke Is Always On Us Sometimes, which I actually used to own that. I didn't realize it was rare, and I think I ripped all the songs to my... I ripped it at 128K (laughs) when MP3 ripping was first coming out. Oh, Tim. And I sold the CD, so... We tried to stop you. You just would not listen to us. I had like 8,000 CDs. I had to start paring down the He got his first iPad or iPod, and he just started like burning all the CDs, which was cool. But then he started selling them all. We're like, what are you doing? Why are you selling all these CDs? It's like, I don't need them anymore. I'm living in a 400-square-foot apartment with two rooms. I don't have room for (laughs) 8,000 CDs. I'm like, you might want to keep those. I'm pretty sure you'll need them. Eventually, and then that, later on, I was like, "Wait, I ripped these all at 128k, and now I don't have them. <laughs> they sound like shit." That was that was a mistake. That and the um, the uh, Soundgarden "Bad Motor Finger" with the double with the extra disc of uh, five songs that included a cover of Black Sabbath. Really into the huh. void. Yeah, it was like another one of those like rare pressings of a bonus <laughs> disc. And yep, I got rid of it. Dumb. It goes for like a hundred dollars on eBay now. I was selling for a while, probably about six or seven years ago, but now I'm more comfortable in my earnings, so I've just slowly been rebuilding, and I've got a huge CD wall. It's actually a CD corner of a room now. It's it's humongous, and I, I found a good way to, to store your CDs where, you know, it's kind of annoying when you had to put one in the middle, uh, like of, you know, in the middle of the alphabet sometimes. Mm-hmm. You'd have to rearrange everything. Now I just got these. I got, you know, boards. I got plywood boards. And I just put bricks on the side of them. So then whenever you need something, you just slide them all down. It's just really simple that way. And I just stack up bricks on the side and then just have boards in the middle. It's way easier. I call it my CD wall. When's the last time you bought a CD, Tim? Last time I bought a CD was... I I have a very limited rotation of bands that I actually still buy CDs for. It's usually either going to be Wilco, (laughs) um, The Tragically Hip... The Twilight Singers, or if Good the Afghan w- if the Afghan Wigs actually put out another CD sometime, I'd buy that. Uh, and that's about it. I I I stopped buying Sunvolt CDs because they stopped being good. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there's very few bands that I'll if Hum ever put out another CD, I'd buy that. Everything See, I've been going different. crazy because I found out that uh, used CDs are getting lower and lower in prices. They're getting like a dollar or two dollars a pop oh, now. Yeah. And uh, guess what? I, I started this podcast. I wanted to get some sponsors together. I just found every used CD store, secondhand mall type place in the area, and I've got them sponsoring. I read out their info, and they give me a pile of CDs a week. So that that way I don't have to spend money on it, but I'm still like, you know, getting old 90s, 80s, 70s bands and just filling out my collection with it. That's awesome. That is a very I know good we've, idea. We've had a couple bands we've, re- we've reviewed, and the only way you can get the record is... Uh, the CD is from Amazon, and it's like a, a one penny. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're not available digital anywhere. You can't, even if you want to legally get it, you couldn't even get it. But you can buy it from Amazon on CD used for a penny. For a penny, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, just to wrap up our history of the band, I mentioned earlier that there were re-releases this year. Merge Records re-released both of the Sugar albums with three discs. There was the original album and then bonus materials, live tracks, live video, and uh, remastered. So those are, as of, I think they came out in July. Those are available for purchase. You can download or you can uh, stream them on Spotify. I highly suggest uh, listening to the remastered versions of those particular albums. We did get some Facebook feedback. Everybody pretty much said we are picking the right (laughs) Sugar album to review. Finally. Yeah, usually we get, oh, you guys should have done this album. But no, we we hit the right one. With sugar, which you got a 50 50 chance when it comes to sugar. I mean, there's only two albums. So, yeah. uh, Kim Ware, who actually was on the podcast two weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, she said, Wow, this is one of my favorite records of the 90s. It was pretty much my soundtrack to the summer of 93. Selling soft frozen lemonade at Carolina Beach. The new remastered version sounds amazing, too, which we agree. Jeff Dolinger cool. said, Great album, great track. Hope he plays it on tour this fall. Jake King, great choice of the Sugar albums to review. That's the one to do, in my opinion. And David Gorgos says, one of the best pop records ever. And he responded to uh, Jeff's inquiry. Yes, he's playing the record in its entirety on tour. And that he already has tickets for Philadelphia in September. So, I was going to say, uh, yeah, he is playing that album and the whole new album in its entirety. So you're just getting two albums when you when you see him, unless he peppers in some other hits. But it's cool that he's playing the whole Copper Blue and then the whole brand new one. And he's playing the Metro this, I believe, next month, which I'm pretty psyched about. So. In Chicago, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he's making a stop in Columbus. <laughs> so unfortunately, once again, we're missing out on a cool show. But that's how it goes in central Ohio. A couple of interesting facts about this particular album. I mentioned that it was the Enemy 1992 album of the year. One of the names that's attached to this record is Lou Giordano, who had worked with Bob on some Husker Du records. He co-produced this record, and then he later worked on albums by Sunny Day Real Estate, uh, The Goo Goo Dolls, and one, Jay, that you'll appreciate, he produced the Luster record. Really? Yeah. Mm. I guess they kind of sonic or similar. Yeah, there's sounds. definitely some sonic connections in terms of the guitars between that Luster record and this. So let's just jump into it. Let's talk about Copper Blue. Well, I was going to also add one thing. Oh, you know that yes. Alan, Alan Alan McGee, the the owner of Creation Records, mm-hmm. um, he's got an awesome new. There's an an awesome documentary about Creation Records called Upside Down. It came out, I believe, last year. It's one of the best music decks I've seen in a long time. Um, what an influential label from Jesus and the Mary Chain, Primal Scream. Then all, in the middle of all these English acts, you got Bob Mould and Sugar. And he, he said he like, took a risk on this album, but it totally blew up. And it kind of re, like, awarded Bob with like, a, a second life, pretty much. And uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend Upside Down, the story of creation records. And th- that's a good jumping off point because... I think Bob's career is pretty much separated into two halves. There's basically the entire Husker Du half of his career, which is, that's pretty aggressive music. It's loud. Some of it's, Jesus Mary Chain is a good example because that early Jesus Mary Chain stuff is really noisy. And that early Husker Du stuff is along those same lines. There's 
a concept double album. There's just a, a whole side to the to Bob Mold that if you are only familiar with Sugar and his solo albums is com- almost completely different. I think Flip Your Wig might be the closest thing to what he sounds like now and and in the Sugar years. And then the his solo stuff is almost completely different than Sugar in that a lot of it's very introspective, a lot of acoustic guitars. I think Black Sheets of Rain has some louder stuff on it, but when you get into like Workbook and um some of those early 90s solo albums it's totally different so on this album it seems like he's going for a particular pop sound on a lot of these songs and i'm wondering what you guys think in terms of the album overall um i do you think that his attempt at trying to reach a new audience outside of who's do going for a more mainstream audience was successful and just your overall thoughts i'm going to start with you andy Sure. Well, if you read his book, See a Little Light, that came out last summer, it's, mm-hmm. that's another awesome read, too. And it, it, he claims that he was actually in the running to produce Nirvana's Nevermind album the year before. So maybe what he like, maybe he witnessed this, you know, kind of punkish band really make a pop, pop statement and uh, kind of tried to do it himself and was pretty successful in like melding pop with that still those loud rock guitars and huge drums, which kind of is similar to Nevermind in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one thing that I picked up on, you know, obviously Kurt Cobain talked about how big of influence the Pixies were on Nirvana. And when you listen to a song like A Good Idea, that yeah. totally songs like a Pixies song. Way that the, the the guitar leads sound like something out of a Pixies song. It's got that like build to it, the way that the Pixies would do. Um, even the bass bass line and drums the, even sound like a Pixies song. Yeah, yeah. And I'm you know this came out in what did I say ninety two. So I mean mm. that's right when the Pixies were sort of hitting their apex. Um, and splitting, think, yeah, and, and splitting up. So I don't think that he was directly ripping off the Pixies, but I know that I believe that. Husker Du was touring with them at probably by the late 80s, mm-hmm. um, playing the college circuit like the Pixies were doing. So uh, there's some natural you know, crossover there. But then on songs like Changes, that doesn't sound anything like a Pixies song. It's got a super sugary chorus to it. And the thing I love about that tune is it gets to... Two verses and two choruses and then a bridge in a minute and twenty seconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cha- it, changes and helpless are pretty much, in terms of pop songwriting, are pretty much genius. Like, yeah. in terms of he gets the hook fast, but what's really cool about it is, especially on like changes, is that the hook is played initially not vocally. You hear it like as an you know an instrument. You hear it as a guitar part, 
And I'm pretty sure the verse and the chorus are the same part. He just changes the vocal. Mm-hmm. And, and to do, you know, <clears throat> to you know this from songwriting, to do that is really hard. To pull that off and, like, not make it, you know, obvious that you're playing the same part is really difficult to do, but he manages to do that very easily. say though that the thing that's weird about changes is that song is five minutes long yeah <laughs> which that's is a- very odd it's considering you get to the hook so fast and it's so well crafted and then there's this sort of part at the end that extends and it's sort of it's a little odd not quite sure why that why that happened i did notice that too that there are a lot of songs where it seemed like he there's like a minute of extra in the song mm-hmm. which we usually get on people for like, why do you have this extra minute when you could cut the song down and make it more palatable? It doesn't, well, I guess it doesn't bother me much because there's so much melody going on in these yeah. songs. And I think in the past when we've criticized that, it's been bands where you can tell that they're just sort of lost in their own heads and standing around, like, you know, just jamming and playing things that they think are interesting and not really, like, able to step back and sort of listen to it, you know, as a listener and make hard decisions He's obviously able to do that, you know, shows the skill that he has in terms of songwriting. Um, so I think when he does extend it, he does a pretty good job of keeping it interesting. And it's done with some purpose. Not quite sure, sure if some of these songs need to be five minutes long. But, you know, well, then he goes, a, for, goes for the like the concise, compact pop hit with If I Can't Change Your Mind. That one seems mm-hmm. like it's got no fat on its bones, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's that guitar just a, solo is awesome. I mean, that's yeah. through a highway kind of in, in a guitar solo, you know. That's pretty much a perfect song. You could screw that up so easily just by the introduction of an acoustic guitar, which was death on a lot of songs because it'd be a dude strumming three chords, you know, and and he's attacking that acoustic guitar. I mean, he's got yeah. energy behind his playing and he brings in these great harmonies into the second verse and it's just it just flies along so fast and it's so catchy. And I know I've heard, you know, there's been a lot of people who have covered that particular tune. I can't remember who, but I had a list in my head of people who would cover that song. reminiscent of like you know bands like the gym blossoms to me you know that kind of came a little bit a little bit after this mm-hmm. like that the rembrandts and like all those bands it's it's very much like feels like that to me i'm wondering if you know that's kind of you know one of the this is where they're getting their influence from because roll you know, to me by that what who was the band who did roll to me uh in like 95 uh, delamitri 
Delamitri. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> haven't thought of them for a long time. That's the first time I've thought of Delamitri since 1995. <laughs> but all those bands were huge on the radio, right? I mean, oh, like, yeah. they were all like one-hit wonders and... You know, it seemed like in rotation there was always one or two bands that sounded like that in the mid nineties. They were they were getting paid for music back in the mid nineties and we're not really anymore. So I mean I'm sure they they probably are doing just fine off roll to me fifteen years later. It's weird. (laughs) One thing I gotta ask you guys, because when I was reading some reviews when the reissues came out, is that almost in every review was mentioned how tightly constructed the album feels. But how within that like precision, it feels very energetic and even raw at times. And I think that it's a lot through his vocal where he lets his vocal get ragged and he pushes it. Did you guys pick up on that where it feels like, I mean, it has a lot to do with the playing of of the drums and the bass locking in so tightly and his guitar tone being so clean and trebly that every all the music is just like so locked in together. But yet he's... You know, letting go at times. Um, I'm thinking of like the Slim is a good example where he sort of lets the vocal go a little crazy. Yeah, I think those extended parts at the end of the songs help too. Uh, you know, I, it makes it feel more like a band, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I have some issues with the production of this record and um, I could see it getting, it, if these songs work as concise as maybe I was. As maybe as you think they would be when you first start listening to some of these songs, you would think that they're going to be really tight, just pop songs. I think if he actually just that, they would come off a little bit, they would come off too sterile. But because of the extended parts at the end where he gets, you know, his voice takes on a different character, he get, puts more energy into it. You know, they change up the parts, they jam out a little bit more. I think that gives you the sense of like, oh, this is a band. This isn't just like one guy doing a studio like recording. This is people really playing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that to me that that those parts in some ways I, I struggle with that there's that's one aspect to do it that I kind of wish they were a little bit tighter but the other aspect to it it does make it feel like a band to me and I also thought the uh, his guitar playing is a big part of what gives it that energy and, and not just uh, I think you mentioned the acoustics but like track one the act we act the solo in that mm-hmm. is is brilliant it's 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 one of those solos where he he's able to um, it gets it's not overly technical, but it's not boring either. So I think in the you know in the nineties we saw a lot of bands like when the solo part of the song would come, you know they would sort of just do the Nirvana thing where they would just make noise and feedback because <laughs> they either didn't want to do a wanky solo or couldn't do a wanky solo. So you would just get like this sort of you know part in the middle of the song where <laughs> they would just do some feedback and make noise. And or they play the melody of the of yeah, the, like yeah. in like in Smells Like Team Spirit, he just basically plays the vocal melody as the solo, right? And he's able to do some stuff where you know it's a new part, or it's a reprise of the vocal, and it's you know it's interesting, it's very melodic, um, but it still has some energy to it. It's not overly simple, you know. It still has some skill to it that I think is really cool, and and that's something I really appreciate about the album. And again, I think he gave it some life.
Andy, you mentioned going back and listening to the Husker Du stuff. Um, and in terms of his guitar solos, I don't remember, and maybe you can correct me on this, I don't remember him taking a lot of solos with Husker Du. I remember there being a lot of, like, not jams, but, like, him making noise and stuff like that. But, like, the, the solo in, like, the act we act or if I can't change your mind, I don't remember stuff like that going on in Husker Du. Do you, do you recall any parts like those? Where he was really no. like letting loose. Yeah, it seemed like Husker Du, they were more about like almost like a no wave experience, like Sonic Youth, like just pure anguish, just let out on your instruments. If you like are a really good instrumentalist, that's kind of looked down upon in that scene. Like we would rather just have the regular regular punk rockers just doing their thing. And that's what, you know, Zen Arcade is an amazing album because on one side it's a completely like uh you know intense detailed concept album and on the other side it's just three guys who never really learned took lessons just making noise on their instruments which is kind of a beautiful thing when they when you can strike a balance and uh with sugar it was more of okay now we're kind of like pop professionalists let's make something that's a little bit more polished that still has emotion but um shows that we have earned some chaps playing in the business for 10 plus years it is interesting in terms of you guys have mentioned like the, the cleanliness compared to Husker Du and, the, and Jay you mentioned the production it is weird how trebly this is there, there is almost like no low end on a lot of these songs like you can hear the kick drum but it's not deep and you can hear no. the bass lines but they're not real you know deep bass lines they're much more mid-range um, not in the same way that like they're not like jawbox style, you know, grindy, but they're just I, I don't know. I, I, I never really picked up on that. I guess the first time around, it just sounded like a very clean sound to me. But now listening to it and having the you know, the years of um, listening experience, I can now pick up on like there's not a lot of low end, which is yeah. kind of I think I wonder if that was sort of what hurt them a little bit with the American radio because i when i think of what a lot of songs were doing during this time i think about mm. like 92 it was big intro drop out the guitars during the verse part and you just have a bass line and then you sort of bring the guitars back in and you have a big chorus with the guitar that's following the pixies yeah. format and these songs don't really do that i mean to be completely honest when i first heard this heard songs from this record back you know in college that was one of the things that really turned me off about it was the production. I found it very, it sounded very digital. Like the drums sound like drum machines almost. And the guitars are very, very compressed. And the acoustic is like, it's like a direct line in acoustic guitar. Like it's not mic'd acoustic. So to your point, Tim, like even on the acoustic tracks, if you listen really close, those are a layer, two or three acoustics and a clean electric and, Sometimes there's a distorted electric in there to try to like beef that up and make it sound fuller. And I don't, I, I'm sure they planned to do that in the first place. But, you know, I remember in the 90s, it was so odd sounding to me, to your, your point about how different this was mm-hmm. at the time. It was kind of a, it was a turnoff just sonically for me. I, I didn't quite get it, what they were going for. And it doesn't have, it also doesn't have what you're saying, those dynamics of, you know, quiet, loud, pretty much for, from the beginning of every song to the end everything's loud you know everything's like in your face super crisp you can hear you can hear all the instruments it's not muddy but like there's no like dips and you know swells and 
it, it's all like you know really up close to you and pretty much as loud as it's going to be for the whole song now i kind of get why with some time and especially with the remastering that actually helped quite a bit i kind of get what they're going for you know i think with the the pop sensibility you know he's coming from it i think from a truly pop standpoint and not a like oh we're in the 90s we need to sound like this he's coming from like a power pop you know yeah cheap kind of thing and you know in that context you know, there's not a lot of dynamics in that you know it's all about writing hooks and melody and you know carefully constructing parts and reprising things and being concise and all that you know and it's not as much about the nirvana or smashing pumpkins sort of dynamic of get super quiet and then build it up you know and then explode sure um not about I that ma- at all i could make a parallel between like the weezer album pinkerton and then going to the green album where it was all shiny it was all solos and all loudness and Pinkerton was more about dynamics and kind of like, you know, more trebly, more, you know, fill in the blanks here. But then they, the Green album was like everything is fully formed and loud. Absolutely. Yeah, it's and, like Pinkerton, much tighter. Pinkerton's an album you want on vinyl. And, you know, the Green album's like, eh, doesn't really matter. doesn't <laughs> you know? matter, yeah. <laughs> the MP3 sound is, you know, the same that the vinyl's going to sound. It's all super compressed and, like, loud and in your face. And sure, there's not much subtlety to it. You know, the, the production was, it's, it is very strange. And the thing that I found just kind of going through the catalog, preparing for, the, for this review, from a drumming guitar standpoint, he's kind of always done this. Like, this is... You know, all the Sugar albums kind of sound like this. Even his newer stuff, kind of, you really listen to what the drums sound like and what the guitars sound like. They're not that far off from this. So it's no. kind of his his sound, you know. Well, I think the Silver Age, which is the new album that's out, is the closest he's come to actually making another Sugar album. Like, mm-hmm. it is straight through the whole album, a rock record. Whereas on some of his acoustic stuff, or on his solo albums, he's got very acoustic, much quieter and he's even done and gone some like done some dancey stuff, which I haven't always loved. You know, That's where the fact where he he's a bear comes into the whole thing when he tried uh, doing mm-hmm. some electronic stuff and the <laughs> oh, yeah, he just wanted music that. to go out to and dance. So Jay, we this will was... not be reviewing any of the dance Bob Mold records. I know you don't like love the dance <laughs> Thank music. You. Thank you. <laughs> but one artist who kept popping up as maybe not necessarily a direct influence, but I kept hearing stylistically is Pete Townsend. And one particular song that really struck me as very like Townsend-esque is Hoover Dam. It's got the synths in it, which okay, that's that's an easy connection. But the thing that's really cool about this album or about this song is there's not a real chorus to it. He, there's a line that's repeated, which is like standing on the edge of the Hoover Dam, and that's the first line of the song. And that melody gets repeated throughout, but he changes the words when he uses that melody. So. That line doesn't get, it gets said once at the beginning of the song and then gets repeated at the end. So it's kind of the chorus, but yeah. he never says that during the song. And it's yeah. a pretty long song. It's like five or six minutes or something like that. But he uses that melody all the way through the song so that you constantly get that melodic repetition. Um, and it's a really interesting structure. And it reminded me of some like Townsend solo stuff where. He's not necessarily sticking to a verse chorus verse format. I was wondering if you guys picked up on that with the weirdness of that song. Oh yeah, I wrote down um, "Tears for Fears" squeeze for some reason on that song. Like, huh? It 
know, it has those thin strings and just the, the tempo of it. And it's very different at that point in the, in the record. You know, it's right in the middle. Um, at that point, for the most part, to me, you know, it's a it's a hard rock or power pop, you know, record for the most part. Um, and then you get to that song and it takes this turn. And um, I think it's like at least two or three songs in a row where you get acoustic guitar, which the first four don't have any acoustic at all. Mm-hmm. So it kind of really, it takes this turn into a whole different side of him. And like you're describing the songwriting techniques, as you analyze it, you know, obviously the first, when I listened to this in college, I didn't really analyze it the way I am now, but when you start to analyzing it and you realize what, what he's doing, you're like, God damn it, that's brilliant. <laughs> like, I wish I would have known, I wish I would have paid attention to this, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when I was writing songs, because I would have stole all these ideas. <laughs> yeah. advanced stuff this is like advanced level songwriting so it's really frustrating to not catch it until we're long past our songwriting days that's the beautiful thing about music though you go back in 10 years and you'll find a you know a list of stuff that you never even thought about and it's the it's the same record it hasn't changed at all it's it's the same thing but we we keep hearing new things we keep you know enjoying different parts of it which is great well yeah and then also you learn stuff so like now, when I listen to the solo in that song, I can go, wait a minute, I think he's playing that, he's either looping it backwards or he's got an Ebo <laughs> nice. going in that song, which I had no idea what an Ebo was 20 years ago. So I would have just been like, that's a cool sounding solo, and then just left <laughs> it at that. But now I can sort of appreciate the technicality that went into actually producing that solo. Jay, do you well, do you, do you know if it's a backwards or an Ebo? Did you well, pick up on that? Let me see. I, I, I made a note on, for damn it was... Uh, um, there's a backward solo at the beginning. There's some organ there too, which makes it a little confusing. Mm-hmm. But what's really smart about that is he uses it in the intro and then he's wide enough to bring it back in the solo. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, from, you know, bands aren't always smart enough to do that, right? I mean, you find a cool sound, you're like, that sounds cool. Okay, I'll do that. And it, you don't have the foresight to think, well, you know, this is a, you know, a piece of music that has a beginning and an end and I should reprise things that, you know, to have that construct themes and, you know, think about it that way. And he obviously, you know, did that and had the foresight to do it so that there's a reason for why it's in the intro. It's not just some weird intro you put in there. It's actually reply reprise in the, in the um, solo. So now it all makes sense. 
It's like a plot key in a movie, kind of like that yeah. little thing will be coming back later. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. like don't introduce it in the first act if you're not going to use it in the third act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, one of the things that was sort of a revelation for this record was how much he plays around with different tones, and which I always thought of this as being a very singular sounding guitar. But when he introduces like solos and whatnot uh, or leads, he plays around with them. And uh, track ten, "Man on the Moon," uses yeah. like a harmonizer or something on the guitar solo after that first chorus. Oh, yeah, yeah, which sounds totally cool because it's there's not it's not used anywhere else on the record. That's and my it's, favorite part of that song. like picking things up 10 years later like that's where i sort of i'm hearing these little things where i'm like this is much more diverse than it initially appears than it's just you know this wall of guitar and trebly and whatnot there's actually a lot of diversity from song to song in the production and like you mentioned jay like it's not just one dude with a guitar playing like there are layers of guitars Mm -hmm. going on i think that maybe uh, Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins might be the only one layering guitars as heavily as as Bob Mould is at this point, because there's like sometimes there's like three or four guitars laid on top of each other, but they create that like not a wall of sound effect, but just like a thickness that yeah. is totally unique to this band. Well, I think it might be Man on the Moon where you know, the riff comes in and it's two, you know, it's a guitar doubled and it sounds huge, and you you're thinking thinking to myself well you know that's pretty much filling out the sound i don't think you would need many more guitars and then like he goes into the verse and those guitars stay and he adds another one <laughs> and i'm thinking like from a mixing standpoint like how do you even fit that in there like where's that mix to, to even allow that to happen you know there's there's like four guitars going on playing two different parts you know but they're all doubled and yeah it's it gets pretty pretty huge pretty we haven't checked out you know like on cds how they say aad or add or aaa you know analog to analog to digital i wonder if this was done is this an early pro tools or digital recording you think here how did you know what it's, it's a good hard. question it's it's really it so sounds like it i mean to be yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Honest, yeah. honest with you it sounds like probably the best bedroom recording you could possibly ever do but it has a an aspect of it like that. Like Cakewalk you know? version 1.1 1. 1 or something. Yeah. I don't know. Back in 90. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was cool. Like I got to interview Steve Albini at his studio last year. And uh, that guy's just a legend. And he's, you know, all for the rights of tape. You know, he loves tapes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, four tracks. I'm actually putting my vocals. Every episode I do, I do my vocals through my Tascam Porta Studio four track. 
from the early 90s, even if I'm doing it on, you know, Skype, which is pretty new and, you know, all this stuff. I just like to keep a little bit of the punk rock feeling in there, even if it's a podcast. I'm still mixing my vocals through a four track. And, uh, yeah, a little Steve rubbed off on me a little bit like that. But, yeah, he had this crazy reputation of being like a dark lord of alternative music and just being cynical and nihilistic. Guy couldn't be any different. He was cracking jokes. He was... You know, he's all about gourmet food. He's just totally easy guy to get along with, and he couldn't be any nicer to us. He let us go, like, hang out at his studio, and then he said, yeah, I got to go hang out with the missus. You guys let yourself out. So he just trusted (laughs) us, and we said, okay, well, we're stuck here at Albini's studio. Um, I guess we should leave now, but it was a great time. Have we reviewed an Albini album? Yeah, we have because uh, we did pull up our website. I'm going to look through the episodes because he doesn't take credit. Or he, I, not that he doesn't. You did credit, that super. He, you did a uh, that super chunk. Yeah, he did no the super chunk episode. Yeah. But he's not on. Uh, he's not even anywhere in the booklet in there. It's just you got to know that he did it. <laughs> he asks not to be included in the. Um, for the most part, to be, I'm sure that there are some where he's listed, but yeah, no Pocky for Kitty is the last one, and oh. we might have done some other ones that he've he's been on. I was uh, just looking at Bob Mould, and I for, had forgotten that he had done the uh, Magnapop. Yep. That we were... Bob Mould produced Magnapop? Yeah, he did uh, Hot yeah. Boxing. Oh, okay. Uh, I, did, I did realize that. I'll have to check that out, though. I did not know. Wasn't it that originally like Dave Barb was actually going to do it, and he passed it off to Bob Mould? Huh. I think that was the story behind it. I don't know. That's a good episode because Ruthie Morris from Mag- Magnapop actually was on the show. Oh, so, cool. So um, that's an early interview. It might have been our first interview, actually. Cool. Yeah, I think that is. But it would, it would have been cool to see uh, what Steve Albini would do to like file under Easney listening because I think that one oh, is yeah. kind of too too saccharine for me. Actually, I would like to have seen them like rough it up a little bit and just have booming drums and you know good miking on the all the drums. That's what Albini's best for, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I, I said bet. earlier that I I originally was more into that album than this album, and I think it's just the it's just there's a little bit better songwriting on this album. I just think that they're. I really like G Angel and you know songs like that from File Under. It comes down to it, like you just cannot deny the fact that they're just like oodles and oodles of melody all over this record, and just great songs with like changes and good idea and and those tunes. And I can't change if I can't change your mind. It just over time has you know eked its way ahead of the other one. But they're I think they're both just incredibly good records. That are is, worth both worthy of checking out. Checking out is this where he really kind of defined himself as a vocalist? Because when I listen to, I'm not a you know I'm not a huge Oscar Du fan, but I've listened to some things, and it uh, you don't quite get the same. It doesn't sound like the same voice exactly. I mean, sometimes you hear you know points in those in there and that stuff where it kind of sounds like him, and you kind of get it. But he's definitely got a distinct vocal style from this album. Yeah, the thing, thing is about Husker Du is they uh, they shared vocal duties, him and the drummer, and like yeah. almost almost fifty fifty, I believe, pretty close to it. And uh, like each of them would write a song and then they'd sing it. That was the easiest way. They wouldn't want to try yeah, to right. like teach the drummer to sing Bob's song or teach Bob how to sing Grant's songs. So it was kind of a, a weird thing how uh, you had two songwriters and then a bassist, which is kind of a neat setup for Husker. The way that he doubles himself, like he, you know, I think that there's, I don't think there's a vocal on here that's not doubled. And the way it's panned, and there's just a very specific sound to the way that he his vocals are produced and the way he sings. I'm guessing these are the albums where that was sort of a, he figured that out. 
now sure. it's his trademark thing. Oh yeah, it's this very, is definitely it's very distinctive. Like this is definitely I, I more produced. Really, I mean, do you think of any other singers when you listen to him sing? It's John Chin from Pretty Mighty Mighty. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, people before him. No, I can't think of anybody that sounds like Bob Mould. That's what's. I mean, he has a very unique. Yeah. It's nasally but hefty at the same time. Yeah, he can There's get like a lot of force. It's weird. He can be nasally. A little bit of Michael Stipe in there, though. I, I don't know. Maybe just a tad, a dashing, a dash of Michael Stipe thrown in. Yeah, but with yeah. more like anger. Like yeah, I feel true. like to me, he's always got a like an edge to him. Yeah, like Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe has a much more not lazy delivery, but just more relaxed delivery. There are two songs, you know, I I really like the majority of this record, but um, I did find myself getting a little not tuning out. But uh, Fortune Teller and Slick, I think they're good songs, but I don't think that they are up to par with like the first seven tracks. Yeah, it's kind of like the seventh Teller. inning stretch. Kind of. Yeah. Go get a beer. Go get a snack. I didn't love Slick. I like I like Fortune Teller though, just because it, it was up up tempo, you know. But well, Slick's the, a story song, which is kind of weird. Like he's very good at writing non-specific but non-cliched lyrics, which I think is a talent to be able to write things that are universal but not saccharine and cheesy. Because the flip side is that is is that it's very writing very specific lyrics, which is hard, really hard to do because they can get really monotonous and technical. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like we bring this band up a lot, but the Manx Street Preachers. Those are mm-hmm. very learned lyrics, yeah. and if you if you want to spend like a couple hours picking out literary references and stuff and various oddball cultural and sure. you know historical references, then that's your kind of band. Um, Especially most, before the guy died, to the Richie James guy. Yeah, like he disappeared before that. Man, their lyrics were very intense, and it was cool that they unearthed a book of his lyrics for their their album a couple years ago. And yeah, they had that was, on, so we're full circle. Yeah. yeah, Jay and I we drove up to Detroit to see them when they were on that tour, um, which was not something we'd ever thought we'd be able to do was <laughs> see the Mag Street Preachers on tour. Wow, but I think. Uh, you know they're on the opposite end, or, or Bob Mould is is on the opposite end where he's not writing very specific lyrics, but he's writing stuff that's very universal. You can, and which is funny because now, you know, when you think about, and I, I read the book, so I have more insight onto his personal life. They're so universal that you're like, yeah, I can I can understand these as being male female relationship songs or male male relationship songs. They're not there. There is in no way like a gender specific. In any of the lyrics, it's always you and me and I and that sort of thing. Yeah. But the car crash song, which is slick, track nine, it's a slower song, and it—I don't know—I—I I, I don't love story songs where because you have to like wait yeah. and wait yeah. and get to the point of the song. Yeah. It's you like, must hate you got, Dylan. Oh yeah, I, I don't like Bob Dylan at all. I like when people cover Dylan, not Dylan himself, which will probably cause me to be castrated. At some point, when uh, my music review license comes up for a review, I heard he's got a Dude, new we, one, if, a fourteen-minute song about the Titanic on his new album. Enjoy, Tim. Wow, you, you're, you've got to be joking. With references to the '97 film, 1997 film. What? That's what I've heard. So, oh, God. how can anybody understand what he's saying, anyways? <laughs> yeah, the Titanic. That sounds painful. Uh. <laughs> All right, well, this would be a good point. I've already mentioned that uh, out of the 10 songs on this album, eight of them really work for me. This would be a good point to get to our rating section of the album. 
where we decide whether we think this is a worthy album would be better as an EP or is just a good single. I've already chimed in. I think this is a worthy album. I think eight songs are awesome. Two songs that they're fine, but they don't really move me in any way. Uh, Jay, what about you? Album, EP, or single? I'm at an album. I will say that uh, the production is, is still a little odd for me, so that by the time I get to the end of this album, I am pretty much spent on Bob Mold for a while. Like, <laughs> you know, my ears need a break. So, uh, you know, but in terms of songwriting, you can't beat it. I mean, it's it's brilliant. There's some great uh, guitar stuff on here, some great riffs. You know, there's probably only two songs. I think Slick and The Slim, which is the 6-8 song, which I'm not... You know, they're they're not in any way bad songs, but you know they're not my favorite. But I'm you know at eight, seven or eight albums or songs is, on this album that I that I like. Is it six eight or is it three four? I'm always confused as to which time signature it is. I think it's six eight. Okay, twelve sixteenths. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got that swing feel to it, you know. Gotcha. I, I like when he's rocking. You know, he's up to the bone rocking. I agree with you on that, Andy. What would your rating be for this? I would say it's definitely a worthy album. Um, shoot, you could all even say that it's worth like a remastered, blown-out deluxe set, too. Um, it was just real cool seeing an artist uh, change his ways, uh, kind of a rebirth. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of success with it. it. It allowed him to keep doing what he loves. And I just always like seeing like an artist have a second act. It's always important. So, And then we like to, for people not familiar with... Bob Mould and Sugar like to maybe ease them into the transition. What are some artists that people are more familiar with that they might find as a gateway into Bob Mould? I think obviously Nirvana and the Pixies, R.E.M., we've mentioned them. Can you guys mention any other bands you say, hey, if you like Nirvana, you should definitely check out Sugar? Uh, you know, what, what hit me when I listen to the record now um, was the Foo Fighters. You know, I think in a lot of ways Dave Grohl is, I think half of his songwriting is he's trying to write this album. Um, sure. You know, and a lot of times you listen to their stuff, you're like, where is he coming from? Like, it's incredibly hooky and, you know, very commercial sounding, but you can't quite pin, like, you know, it doesn't sound like he does, you know, the Foo Fighters don't sound like Led Zeppelin or they don't even sound like Nirvana, you know, they, but it's still very familiar. And to me, I think these, I think these albums were a very big influence on them. And the other band that came to mind that I was kind of surprised was um, the later Catherine Leal stuff. So like Wishville, I think okay. even like a good idea, I could definitely hear that's where Bruce Dickinson was, I think, taking the band when they got out of their shoe Rob. days. <laughs> Rob, sorry, his cousin. When he took band, you know, away from the shoegaze sound, I think this is a little bit where he was, where he was headed. So those were two that kind of came out to me and I was frankly not expecting in a million years that those two bands would be the ones I think of, but that's what I was thinking of. Andy, anybody for you that you think is a good gateway into well, going, sugar? Going back to Grohl, I mean, uh, I mean, he's never hid his adoration for Husker Du and, uh, you know, during the Nirvana days. And then they, Foo Fighters certainly ended up sounding more like sugar than Husker Du. And it was cool that Bob guested on the latest Foo Fighters, Wasting Light. And it was cool because, Butch Vig was behind the boards, and it was cool having those three guys meet up for recording. And it's funny because mm. the new Bob Mould album kind of has that same sound as kind of contemporary, like uh, Foo Fighters meets Sugar. So I think that new, uh, yeah, the new Silver Age album is definitely going to be something that people are interested in. If you like Bob at all, I think it's this is him at a, at a cool, uh, 
cool apex of his solo career. And I really love the new uh, music video for the new song, too. That was you guys got a chance to see that one. I haven't, I haven't checked it out. No. Oh. It's for the, the song. Boy. Yeah. What's what's the single called? I'll pull it up right now. The Descent. Um, yeah. The Descent, which is a great song. And uh, the video is totally cool. It's Bob's at an office and it looks like he just got fired. So he's got all of his belongings in a box. There's even like a golf club in there. And there's like, a you know, uh, I think a poster for your wall and stuff like that. So he's leaving the office. He and he escapes the office. Slowly but surely, he walks, you know, throughout the whole city. He gets into this forest, and it, it appears as though he's living amongst the forest at the end of the video, and he's used all, all of his stuff to create a house, create a little, like, a hut, and uh, he's cut the sleeves off his, off his dress shirt, so, you know, he's going back to nature. And that was kind of a punk rock thing. I, I just laugh because <laughs> it's definitely not in tune with the, with the music world of nowadays, but that's kind of why I like it at the same time. I'm surprised that there was a video made. I didn't know yeah, really. people made videos anymore. <laughs> it's a big budget one, too. It looks yeah. like something like every, Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. It's got that kind of feeling to it. Fans so. are still making videos. I mean, I think it's really... it's kind I of guess because it's on. cheaper now because you can just get well, a digital video camera. and it, It's cheaper and it's you know one of the few ways that you can promote yourself and in terms of like you know YouTube and stuff. You can just upload it there and then promote it. And you, you know, if you do something that's funny or clever... It's one of the ways that you can kind of get some momentum and maybe get something viral going. You know, I think bands are still doing them. It's kind of, you know, when you think about it, you're like, well, MTV's not going to play them. Why the hell are you doing them? But there's a whole new purpose for why to do them. So it's cool that he's, he's jumping in the pool. YouTube is the new MTV for sure. I think. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Everybody's got their own channel now. I think that wraps up our discussion on Sugar and the album Copper Blue. We need to thank our guest, Andy Dare. Andy, where can we find you on the interwebs? All right. You can check it out at theandydareshow.com. Uh, follow me at Andy Dare. That's A-N-D-Y-D-E-R-E-R. Um, a weekly music-based uh, show. Pretty much just interviews. Um, do I also do a couple of reviews here and there. Um, just trying to pick the brains of people that have, you know, some history in the game of music, which I'm always interested in gleaming a little bit of knowledge out of somebody. And you're on iTunes and Stitcher and all that good stuff. Yep. And uh, yeah, I got a new season coming uh, September 8th, which is a Saturday. Um, Got a whole bunch of guests lined up. I've got uh, a guy from the Adam Carolla show is doing a new theme song for me, somehow skewering my uh, Chicago accent and my Irishness. We will see how that comes out. I'm kind of worried. But uh, (laughs) yeah, a whole bunch of cool new guests. I just talked to Art Alexakis of Everclear, hoping he'll come on. I've got a guy from Poi Dog Pondering. I've got range, so there's uh, there's not really a genre I wouldn't mind talking about. I really do like uh, just you know interviewing people. It's quite an art, and uh, just want to thank you guys for taking the time out and having me on for sure. Absolutely, and and please settle this for us because you're from Chicago. You can answer this. Where is the best? place to get a chicago dog in chicago because i was just there a couple months ago i got five different answers from five different people where is the best place to get a chicago dog chicago dog huh that's tough i would probably say the wiener circle in lincoln park just because it's always an interesting uh place to be you know past 10 30 at night always get the <laughs> colorful uh college frat guys making a lot of being annoying and uh being goofy 
But I'm actually a barbecue guy myself. I, I, I do a day job at a barbecue restaurant. We do the real deal barbecue with smokers, and I carve pigs for a living. That's, I'm the only guy to do podcasting and pig carving at the same time. <laughs> I put that. So, so yeah, check it out. I, I, I do talk about all this stuff on the show. It's just kind of trying to, trying to just carve out a little niche. I, I don't think there's too many pig carving uh, podcasters around nowadays. I think you have the market cornered. Yeah, I'm trying to bring it back if it ever was before, so I don't really have to bring anything back. All right. Well, that's it, everybody. We need to thank our guest again. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, Jay, thank you once again for joining me. Mm. And uh, if you like this show, stop by, leave us some feedback on iTunes. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.